Well, good morning. I hope you guys enjoyed an extra hour of sleep last night for at least some of you, right? Uh, we're going to continue through our Gospel of John series. We'll be in John chapter 18. If you are a guest here with us this morning, thank you for being here. We're glad to have you here with us. Pray that you're encouraged. Pray that your heart is spurred on to love Jesus more or to come to know Jesus today. Love to meet you after service. And if you are tuning in online for the first time, thank you for tuning in. We'd love to have you here in the house in the next couple weeks and get to know us and let us get to know you. We've been going uh, through the Gospel of John now for almost a year, and now we're in John 18. Before we dive into John 18, there's a, a trend that maybe some of you saw a few years ago where people were getting this tattoo that you see on the screen here. No regrets. Okay, uh, no regrets, and uh, people did it, maybe the first time it was an accident, and, and, and it really was really an accident, but people started doing it, and it started, started to pick up steam, because there's a little bit of humor with that, but at the same time, it hits something that's, that's very true of our hearts, right? Like, we all have a sense of regret for some things in our lives, things that we wish we could go back and do different, um, things that we wish that we could take back. And so we get a tattoo like this, and it highlights kind of the jovial, joking side of like, yeah, we have regrets, but um, we really don't want to think about them that much, right? But I want us to understand that, man, we can bring all of our regrets before the Lord. And what we find in this passage today is a man, Peter, who has probably the greatest regret of his entire life here in this page of Scripture. Where he looks back and he regrets this moment. But what we'll see at the same time is the great love and power and mercy and might of our God that overshadows this great regret that Peter has. And the truth that we have to grasp today is this, is that that same God that has that great power and great love still has mercy that can overshadow our deepest regrets that are caused by our sin. So let's pick it up in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 27. It says this in the Word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which his disciples entered. All right, I want to pause here for just a second, because this really gives us the setting of where this is going to take place. And as we continue to read, we'll see two more important things. Not as it just, they're walking through the brook Kidron, but this is at night. People come to arrest them with torches and lanterns, but it's also very cold. You'll see Peter at the end of this warming himself by the fire. So you have a cold, dark night, and their feet are treading in the brook of Kidron or the valley of Kidron. Now why that matters and why that should be of importance to us it's because the temple at that time was stationed where they would have an altar that they would sacrifice all these animals because of their sin. They would realize that we have to atone for our sins, all our deep regrets that we have. This time of year that this is happening is Passover, where they would bring their lambs, the Jewish people would bring their lambs, and they would be slaughtered for their sins as a sacrifice. Now, what we know from, from history is that the drain that would run from the altar out of the city would actually drain here in the brook of Kidron. And the history uh, tells us, or historians tell us, that about 200,000 lambs would be slain during this time. 
Now let that sink in for a second. It's a dark, cold night, and they're walking to this garden. And as they walk, underneath them is a squishy ground from all of the blood that has been shed from all these animals because of their sin. That's the picture that we have in this moment, okay? So it's a, it's a sad moment, but we're going to see the great love and power even in the midst of this moment. Verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all, don't, don't miss those two words, we're going to come back to them. But then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciple, which most commentators believe the other disciple is John, who wrote this. Since the disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood on the outside of the door so that the other disciple, who was known by the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch on the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You're also not one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, they were standing there warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask also those who heard me what I have said to them. They know what I have said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is this how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about my wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, Are you also not one of his disciples? 
He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it again. And at once the rooster crowed. Pray with me. Lord, we confess this morning that we have regrets in our lives. We have sinned and we've missed the mark of where you desired for us to be. And at the same time, we've even missed the mark of where we desire to be for ourselves. So Lord, we thank you for this passage that shows us your might and your mercy, your great steadfast love for us. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of this passage that you are a friend to sinners. And Lord, I ask today that we would see your goodness, that your goodness would lead us to repentance. And as we read and we unpack your word, may it bring comfort to our hearts and our souls. We ask that you would teach us now through your spirit and your word. Let me invite you in this moment of silence to pray that God would speak to you through his word this morning. Ask him right now. Would you also pray for me as we look at this extremely important passage of truth in God's word, that it would uh, speak comfort and truth this morning to us. Would you pray for me as I communicate it? Lord, these words were written that we might believe and that in believing in you, we would have life and have it abundantly. And so, Lord, I ask today that you would help us with our unbelief, you'd help us with our doubts. God, allow us to see you in all of your might and all of your mercy and worship you for it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, in this passage, I want us to see two things. I want us to first look through the lens of the might and love of Jesus. And then I also want us to look through the lens of Peter to see our own regrets and our sins. And so first, let's look at Jesus, the one who is powerful enough to rescue and loving enough to want to. He's powerful enough to rescue and he's loving enough to want to. The very beginning, as we read this passage, we see the power and the might of Jesus. I mean, we might read this story and it brings pity to our heart. It should make us stand in awe of the power of God in our hearts. I mean, you see the power of Jesus in multiple ways. You see it from what he knows. You see the power of Jesus through what he speaks. And you see the power of Jesus through what he does in this moment. I mean, this whole section is full of his power and his might. The reason why this is important is because it's going to show us his strong arm who is able to rescue any who would come to him. Now you see his power and what he knows in verse 4. We read the context in the, in the first three verses, but in verse 4 it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Knowing all that would happen to him. Jesus is not a victim of this moment. Jesus is not sitting there being like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this happened. He's been saying it over and over again to his disciples that this moment is going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be arrested. He's going to be bound. He's going to go and die on behalf of sinners. 
He said that. He even attached an illustration to it when he gave the Lord's Supper. My body's going to be given for you. My blood is going to be shed for you. He's been saying it over and over and over again. Jesus knows that in this moment, he's about to be arrested. And not only is he going to be arrested, he's going to be put on trial falsely. And then he's going to have to carry a cross after he's been flogged and beaten to the top of the hill where he would hang and die in our place for our sins. Jesus knows every bit of that. And you see that Jesus doesn't waver. He knows that this is coming, and yet he chooses a common place that Judas would know to come and find him. He chooses a garden that the disciples would often go to. And with the people come to arrest them with their torches and their lanterns and their weapons, look what Jesus did in verse 4. It says that he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now this is important because what this means is Jesus wasn't hiding. He's not over here isolated being like, oh no, here they come. I guess I'm just going to have to suffer through this moment. Nor is he even sitting there with his arms crossed waiting for them. No, he sees them coming and Jesus leans into the moment and steps up and says, whom are you looking for? He knows everything and he's not running from this moment. He knows he was made for this moment or this moment was rather made for him. He knows that. And so he comes forward in this moment. As he comes forward and he asks that question, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the reason why they asked that question is because they didn't have electricity like we have today where they could look and they would be able to see the face clearly. This is at nighttime, right? And at the same time, they didn't have pictures of everybody like we have on Facebook or Instagram. And so in this moment, they're like, we've got to make sure we got the right guy, which is why most of the time, you didn't go arrest somebody at night because you had to make sure you had the right person. This is why Judas came with them in the first place. That's why Judas comes up and gives Jesus a kiss on the cheek. So they're like, there's no deception. This is the guy. This is Jesus. And so they ask that question, and this is where you see the power of Christ come in his words, in what he says. He says, I am he. And they fall to the ground. He just speaks Two words, we have three in our translation, but we put he on the end of there so it flows a little bit more, but the original translation was just I am. We've heard that all throughout the Gospel of John, right? If you've been here through this series, Jesus has been saying, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He even says before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. No, he says, I am. He's using a specific word to describe himself. It's a word that we've talked about a number of times. It goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, where Moses is out in the wilderness, and there's this burning bush that tells him to go into the city and to free God's people. And he's like, if I go into the city and I tell them that a burning bush talked to me, they're going to think I've been burning some bush. And so what I need is for you to tell me your name, Right? And so he says to him, tell them that I am sent you. The very name of God, I am. Go, amen. And right here as Jesus steps forward and says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus. He says, I am. And they fall to the ground. His words of power. 
And I think there's a little bit of humor that happens in this moment. Verse 6, they fall into the ground, and then Jesus asks again in verse 7, whom do you seek? And I picture it in this moment, they're all laying on the ground, they get up, they're kind of dusting themselves off, and he's like, yeah, who are you looking for? Oh, you're, you're looking for Jesus. I, I am he. And he says it again. That's what Jesus does in this moment. He's showing his might and his power. Now, it's important for us to grasp this. When Jesus speaks and they fall to the ground, these are not weak, feeble people that Jesus speaks to and they fall to the ground. These are not like the villagers that are coming out with their pitchforks and torches. That's not this group right here. If you look down in verse 12, we find more detail. It says, a band of soldiers and their captain. These are terms to talk about Roman soldiers. And a captain would oversee 600 soldiers. That's what a band of soldiers is. So these are not weak, frail people. These are battle-hardened Roman soldiers coming to arrest Christ. He speaks, I am, and they fall to the ground. This is the power of our God in this moment. This is his might and his strength. Now, as I'm reading this and thinking about this this week, the irony of this is so sad. You think about this. A group of men come with their torches and their lanterns to arrest and seek out the light of the world. They came with their swords and their armor to subdue the prince of peace. And they could not stand before Jesus when he spoke two words. They could not stand before Jesus in his rags of humanity. What makes them think that they're going to stand before him in all of his holiness and majesty one day? And that's the question that we have to be able to answer as well. If Jesus is as powerful and as mighty as he says he is, and as we see displayed in the pages of scripture, and as we see even in our time today, how are we ever going to be able to stand before this mighty king when they couldn't stand before him as he stood in his rags of humanity? We'll get to the answer to that before we get to the end of this passage. But I also want us to see the might and the power of Jesus and what he does. Not just that he knows all things, not that he can just speak powerfully, but in what he does. Now, we don't find it in this passage. We see this moment where Peter strikes the ear of the, the servant, but what we find in the gospel of Matthew and in the gospel of Luke is that when this moment happens, what Jesus does is he leans down and he picks up the severed ear and he heals the man. He puts it back on his head. I mean, think about that. Jesus knows that he's going to be bound and arrested and crucified and die, and he cares about this man who has lost his ear. He doesn't use his power to save himself. He uses his power to lovingly care for someone else. This is what Jesus does in this moment. Now, it's funny to me, Peter, he's going to, to basically look at Christ and say, you're not going to step in to save me. I'm going to step in to save you. And so he pulls out his butter knife, his dagger, his sword, and he goes to swing at the servant of the high priest. That's what verse 10 tells us. Now, Remember, there's all these soldiers, there's a captain there, there's Romans that are there with their armor and their swords, and Peter swings his sword at the high priest's servant. Now, what we know about this person from, from history is 
this person would not be standing there with a sword. This person is probably not standing there with a, with a torch. The high priest servant's probably standing there with snacks. Hey, guys, you hungry? Like, here, I'll give you some. Roman soldier, I'll give you some. Like, this is the weakest person in the bunch. And Peter looks around. He sees all these sword, soldiers. He's like, I'm going to save Jesus by that guy. I'm going for the, the weakest one. Like, that's the one I'm going for. And he still fails. He, he's, he's aiming for the head, and all he hits is the ear. Like, the, this guy, the servant, has time to, like, lean out of the way as Peter's swinging the sword. Right? And Jesus, in this moment, all of his power and all of his might, what he does is he heals the man. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that he looks at Peter and he tells Peter, I could call 12 legions of angels right now with their swords to rescue me. I don't need your butter knife. I don't need it. Because he has that kind of power. He has the power to heal. He has the power to call the angels to rescue him. This is the power that he has. It's the power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So how, if that's true, how did verse 12 happen? How did he get bound? I mean, if he has the power to speak and they fall to the ground, I mean, he crumbles this army of 600 men by speaking a word, then how do they bind him? How did they arrest Jesus if he has all this power? Well, it's because of his love. You see, Jesus doesn't just have power. He has love. And it is his love that allows himself to be bound in this moment. You see, he's powerful enough to rescue and he's loving enough to want to. You see his love spill all over the page that we've just read. In verse 8, Jesus uses substitutionary language. When he comes forward, he says, who are you looking for? They're like, Jesus and Nazareth. He says, I am he, so let these men go. And in the original language, this was a substitutionary word. I'm going to step into their place, so arrest me and let these men go free. He was bound so that they could be freed. And you might think, well, Ryan, that's great for those few men that were in the garden that night. But what about me? And what about us today? Well, look at verse 11. Jesus says to Peter, put down your sword. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, this cup was all throughout the Old Testament. If you've read the Old Testament, you know the Old Testament. This cup is a word that they would use to talk about judgment, the day of judgment. Where this cup would be filled with God's wrath and it would be poured out on tyrants and oppressors. This cup is a cup of suffering and pain and punishment. It is judgment that he's speaking of right here. And he looks at Peter and he says, I'm going to drink this cup for you. And Jesus didn't look at Peter and say, hey, I'm going to drink a little bit of this cup, half of it. You're going to have to drink the other half, so you're going to have to take some of the wrath of God for the sins that you've done. No, Jesus drank all of it so we would not have to taste a drop of it. That's what he does in this moment. That's what he's saying. Now, there's, there's confusion in our day and in our culture on the wrath of God and the judgment of God. We don't love to talk about it. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. But I tell you who does want to talk about it, God. You turn the pages of Scripture, he talks about wrath. A lot. So we have to rightly understand it because our world that does not know Christ would say, man, there's no judgment day coming. So live however you want to. We can try to fight for 
uh, justice now, but there's never going to be a day where it's going to be rectified. It's just not. That's what the world says. And a good moral person, somebody that's like, well, I believe in God, and, but I'm not really following Jesus, like a good moral person will say, well, there is a judgment day coming. Yeah, there is. You just got to be a good enough person to endure that day of judgment. That's not correct either. The gospel says that judgment day is coming, absolutely. But the judge has come already and has stood in our place on the cross and took the full wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't have to take it, so that we wouldn't have to face the judgment. This is the gospel. Not be a good person, not drink a little bit of the cup of wrath. Jesus took every drop of the cup of wrath in our place to give us freedom. And he did all this because of his great love. His love is what allowed him to be bound this night. His love is what stayed his hand, not calling in the angels when he hung on the cross. He did this to rescue and redeem us. So the application I would have for us is two. One, if you're not a believer, believe this to be true. Believe it. If you don't believe that Jesus stood in your place and that he's taken your sin, if you think, well, I'm, I'm preparing for judgment day by being a good moral person, then all you have is the cup of wrath poured on you. But if you believe that somehow, some way, Jesus stand, stood in my place, he didn't just die for me, he died instead of me, then you find life. And for those of us that know Jesus, I hope you're so encouraged by this passage. I hope you're so refreshed by these truths. As I'm reading this this week, I am so encouraged by what Christ does in this moment. I mean, think about this. Think about this. Peter has walked with Jesus for three plus years. He's heard Jesus teaching after teaching after teaching. He's prayed with Jesus. He's, he's heard Jesus say time and time again, I'm going to die for you going to stand in your place. He said it a lot of times, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, my time is here where I'm going to the cross for you. He has said it so many times. And then when that time comes, what does Peter do? He steps up and like, no, 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 not on my watch. Like, you're not doing any of that stuff that you just said. Like, I'm going to stop this right now. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus, I'm so thankful I'm not, I would be done at this point. Done. I'd be looking at Peter being like, Peter, Bro, we just had a meal. We just shared the Lord's Supper. I told you I'm going to die. My blood's going to be shed. Like I, I've told you so many times, and here you are again saying, no, you're not going to die. No, you're not going to be bound. No, you're not going to the cross. You're not going to do any of that. Like if I were Jesus, I'd be like, arrest him. I'm done. Like I'm going on back to heaven. You can just arrest these guys, and we'll move on. But that's not what Jesus does in this moment. It encourages me that Jesus in this moment, when Peter should have got it, he should have understood and Jesus leans in again. He's like, Peter, hey, man, we talked about the cup. We talked about the wrath that's coming. You remember that? We talked about how I was going to have to drink it. Man, don't, don't forget that, Peter. He shares the gospel with Peter one more time, and then he stands up and they bind him. <laughs> the great patience of God with us, man, it encourages me. I hope it encourages you. Where time and time again, you're like, no, 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 God, I've got this. I don't need your help. And then Jesus leans in again. He's like, no, you can't do it apart from me. <laughs> don't forget the gospel. Don't forget it. 
That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. He is showing us his unyielding love. There is no amount of pain that's going to stop Jesus from saving us. There's no amount of our stupidity that's going to keep Jesus from saving us. There's no amount of us running from God in which he is not going to pursue us because he loves us and he's mighty enough to save us. So be encouraged by that truth. Be encouraged by that truth. For it's that truth that overshadows our regrets from our sins. You see, we need to see the power and might of Christ and the great love of Christ. But if we don't see the depths of our sinfulness, then we won't see the beauty of our Savior. Which is why I feel like it turns the lens from looking specifically at Jesus to looking at Peter for a minute. And as we look at Peter, what we find is this. We are sinful enough to need him, to need Jesus, but fearful enough to deny him. We're sinful enough to need him and yet fearful enough to deny him. Now, I don't want to go into a bashing session on Peter here because, I'll be honest, Peter probably had much greater faith than me, probably much greater faith than most of us in this room, if not all of us. I mean, Peter at one point believes so much in deep faith in Jesus, sees him walking on water, and he's like, hey, I want to walk with you, Jesus. He steps out of the boat, and he walks a couple steps, and I know he doubts, and I know he sinks, but hey, that's a few more steps than I've ever walked on water, right? And in this moment, I don't want to bash Peter because I think what Peter is, is a mirror, I think Peter in this moment is responding in a lot of the same ways that we would have if we were faced with this moment, and even as we do today, maybe yesterday. You see, Peter in this moment is going to deny Christ three times due to the fear of man. Due to the fear of man. He is. Time and time again, he is afraid of who man is, and so he denies Christ. And let me say this, if you're afraid of man, you will never live the life that Christ has called you to live. You won't. In the book of Galatians, Paul says this in Galatians 1 verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Not be a servant of Christ. If you are primarily driven by fear, you will never live the life that God desires for you to live. So what are you afraid of? Do you fear rejection or being criticized? Maybe it's being made fun of. You're afraid that your friends will disown you or you'll lose your job. What is it that you fear? We have to decide whether we're going to live in faith or live in fear of man. The faith in God or the fear of man. And in this moment, we see Peter defaults to the fear of man. Every time they ask him, are you one of the disciples? He says, I am not. Now, did you see the parallel of words that I believe John is trying to get us to grasp in this moment? When they go to arrest Jesus, Jesus says, I am I am. I am God. I'm the creator. I'm the sustainer. I am God. And then Peter, in the scene where they're like, hey, are you one of his followers? Are you one of his disciples? His response, Peter's response is, I am not. <laughs> I'm not. See, Peter, in this moment, what he's basically claiming is his sin. 
I know I'm not God. I know I'm not perfect. I am not. And with his very words, as he denies Jesus, he's showing the vast difference between us and him. He is the great I am, and we are not. This is what's happening in this moment. Now, as we reread in this passage, it, it leaves out a few de- details that we find in the other Gospels. We find that, that Peter, as he says and denies Christ the third time, he runs away and weeps bitterly. He weeps bitterly. We also find out in, in the other Gospels that as this whole conversation is going on, as they're standing around the fire and Peter's talking to these different people, and he denies Christ, Christ, though he's on trial and people are talking to him and slapping him in the face, he still is cognizant of what's going on in Peter's life. And he looks over and there's a glance given between Jesus and Peter in this moment. This is fascinating. Jesus, with all that's going on, he still looks and knows the sins of Peter. He knows the depths of his heart and the depths of his denial. And yet what we'll find is that he loves him the same. You see, as Peter runs away bitterly, bitterly, this biggest regret of his life, we're going to find that he struggles. What do I do with this sin? What do I do with these regrets? Where do I take these things? And that's the question we should be asking. See, Peter's not the villain. He's the mirror of our own hearts. So when we see the sin, what do we do with it? Where do we take it? It's just like last Sunday. I told you guys a few weeks ago that we as a church started serving the Cabarrus Development Center where young men are incarcerated, they're students and youth, and we've been able to start showing our services over there, which has been encouraging. God opened that, up that door. We've got men here that are faithfully serving week in and week out to go over there and to share the gospel with these, these students. And last Sunday, one of them, after the service, slipped a letter underneath the door of his cell that said exactly what Peter probably thought in this moment. He says, if I want to confess my sins to the Lord, where do I start? Praise God for that. And what happened in his heart should happen in every one of our hearts. God, what do we do with our sin? What do we do with our regrets that are caused because of our sin? And what we'll find out, the good news, in a couple weeks as we get to John 21, is that what Peter does is he runs not from Jesus, but to Jesus. They're on a boat, and they're out there, and they're fishing. He sees Jesus on the shore. And he knows he's denied it. He's known he's, he's lived in this regret for a long time. And he looks and he sees Jesus and he doesn't say, oh, time out. Got to go clean myself up, make sure I'm good enough to, to come and stand before Jesus. No, he jumps out of the boat. He swims and he comes to Jesus. And what we find is that Jesus forgives him. He forgives him. He knows what he's done. He knows his sins. He forgives him. And he doesn't just forgive him. He restores him. He restores him. He doesn't just say, you're forgiven, but guess what? Stand in the corner over there. I'm not using you for my kingdom. I'm not using you for my church. You're a wicked sinner. You denied me three times. Glad you're forgiven. Just wait until heaven. You're done. No, he looks at Peter and he says, you're forgiven? I'm going to use you in my church. I'm going to allow you to, to share the gospel with others. But yeah, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know you're a sinner. 
but you've brought your sin to me and you're forgiven and restored to move forward in life and not in your sin and share the good news. I feel like that our sin in our life has robbed us from serving the Lord. It's robbed us from sharing the good news with others because we feel like we're not good enough yet. We have to understand the truth of this passage, that Christ, knowing every one of our sins, is powerful enough to save. I don't care how deep those sins are, how far they are, how recent they are, he can rescue and redeem you from those. He knows all things. He knows your sin. And he would say, come to me, and in my love, I will stand in your place and drink the full cup of wrath so that you could be forgiven. So church, let us live in that truth. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your power, your mercy that overshadows Peter's deepest regrets, but also our deep regrets caused by sin. And so, Lord, I pray that you would even rescue and redeem now in your power and in your might. And that we in this room or those that are online will respond just like that student at the Cabarrus Development Center. If I confess my sins to the Lord, where do I start? And Lord, we know that starts with you. Not running from you, but running to you. Knowing that we don't clean ourselves up, but that you are the one who cleanses us. Lord, thank you for the truth that says if we confess our sins, you cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. So we pray our sins to you now and confess that you're Lord. And for those of us that know you, who trust in you, thank you for the encouragement in this passage of your great patience with us, your great love for us, who doesn't give up on us even when we still don't understand as you've taught us year after year, even though we still battle, we struggle with our sin. God, thank you that you are loving and patient with us. God, we're grateful for that. We're grateful for how you have stood in our place that we could be forgiven. We love you, Lord. And we sing to you now. We bring our offerings to you now. We bring our prayers to you now. Lord, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, with this truth and this goodness of our loving Savior in mind, let's stand and let's sing to him.